0: In an industry that's self-regulated, we do so little to ensure that our clients are comfortable and that our clients have a good experience. So in my industry and my my particular practice, I want to make sure that anyone who walks into my door is treated appropriately and respectfully.
1: Hi everyone, welcome back to the show. Today's guest is someone that I'm super excited to talk to and to talk about their industry and what they do in it. It's something that's near and dear to my heart, but also I think the way that we can talk about it today is gonna be really interesting based on the type of shop that uh, he works at and all of the things that led to their journey. Sebastian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, I'm very excited to be here. So for the uninitiated, for people who don't know, who are you and what do you do? Uh,
0: My name is Sebastian Murray. Um, I'm a tattoo artist out of Lethbridge, Alberta. I do tattoo between Lethbridge and Calgary. I am a very loud and proud transgender queer person from Southern Alberta, and I like to use a lot of my experiences into taking like an intersectional approach into my career and into my art practice.
1: All right, let's start with what you do today, like your career, how you've built it up. I'm real interested in your thoughts on gatekeeping because I know you and Monica discussed that quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. And then as we get into the conversation, we'll talk about like growing up in, uh, in I guess leftwards would be Southern Alberta, right? More, Definitely. more South than here, <laughs> so <yeah. laughs> more Southern Alberta. Uh, we'll talk about that, your experiences and then uh, how you found your path. Cool. Sounds good. All right. So uh, tell us about your tattooing practice today.
0: So. My practice is something that I've been thinking about since I was a kid. I wanted to tattoo since I was probably like seven or eight years old. I don't really know where I got that into my head, but uh, it's something I've been wanting to do since I was a kid. So a lot of my practice, I feel like I've been thinking about since I was thinking about the last 20 years. So my practice is one that I like, that that encompasses my entire life, I should say. Um, Tattooing is my life. Um, My big things right now that I'm focusing on are trying to bring out more specific flash designs that are, more incongruent to the direction I want to go um, so a lot more neotrad a lot more full color um, that being said I genuinely enjoy tattooing anything and everything again I wanted to tattoo since I was a kid so I'm definitely one of those artists that will say no to very very little um, because I just love tattooing like I just love the entire the the, the entire experience for me as an artist is just so fulfilling previous to tattooing
1: you've always been involved in art since yes you were very, very young, but so what was the transition point from doing any other kind of art oh. to actually getting into tattooing?
0: So getting into the industry is, is, is probably one of the hardest parts, truth be told, of the career. I would, well, maybe in the first five years or so, but getting into the industry because it's self-governed. So, like, the industry governs itself. So to get in, you have to, like, know the right people, talk to the right people, and just be able to network yourself appropriately. And... and that idea of what it means to be appropriate is so different now than what it meant to be 5, 10, 20 years ago. My thing was when I got out of art school, I bartended for a long time, just trying to, you know, save us some money, trying to build up my uh, portfolio of drawings, and then trying to get tattooed to try to build those connections and those relationships. Um, Luckily, one of my best friends started coming into the bar I used to work at, and him and I became really, really close, and he kind of got me into a shop that I was able to kind of weasel my way into, but it got my foot in the door, it got me some clientele, it got me some practical experience. So when other options were given to me to move to another shop that was more I guess congruent to the direction I wanted to go, I was able to make the leap. Yeah, ever since then I've been on my own and just trying to hustle and yeah, just keep building my career, building my clientele, my technicality and experience, so.
1: Around your style specifically, I heard a few different, like I heard neo-trad and full color. So what can you tell us about your style and how you've developed it?
0: When I was first starting tattooing, I wanted to draw stuff to like fit the direction of the art style I wanted. Whereas now I feel like I'm more interested in investing into what it means to be a, like a neotrad artist specifically. So like what that means in terms of like design practices, like line weight, um, imagery used, color palettes, like what is the history of this particular art style and how are ways I can bring it into a more contemporary way that fits the way that I just naturally want to draw. So neo-trad obviously coming out of traditional, coming out of American traditional, stemming out of, you know, World War One. Sailor Jerry stuff out of Hawaii we could talk about even.
1: Being someone who's tattooed, I have like a general idea of the things you're talking about, but for the, again, for the uninitiated, what specifically is Neotrad and how is it different than traditional tattooing?
0: So Neotrad, again, it comes out uh, as a derivative of traditional tattooing, American traditional tattooing. Um, it's does take references to some of the imagery still used. I mean, American traditional stuff has a lot of military, a lot of naval imagery, Um, but now there's definitely more contemporary stuff. You see a lot more like lady faces are super popular. You see a lot of floral work. You're gonna see, yeah, lots of pop culture now was kind of worked into the imagery as well. The big thing that I notice um, too is line weight. You know, in, in traditional work, you'll see you know one line weight throughout the entire tattoo. Neotrad you'll see maybe two to three to four different line weights. So you have thick lines. So like think of like a, like a thick tip Sharpie versus like a fine tip Sharpie. So you'll see those kind of differing weights in the tattoo. Another big thing you also see is like the palettes. Um, some of the, the color palettes from traditional tattooing are relatively simple. Some of that does have to come back to like the technology and what was available at the time too. Um, so now that we have more contemporary technology, we can take those color palettes and we can grow on them. So instead of just having maybe a palette of, you know, we have a solid you know, red an orange and a blue, we could have, you know, a brick red and a pomegranate. We could have a, you know, a nice cantaloupe with a burnt orange with, you know, there's there's just so much more. There's so much more available, I should say, nowadays. So I guess going back to that initial question, Neotrad is a derivative of traditional. It takes um, points from traditional tattooing, but also relies on different contemporary thought patterns along with the technology that's available to us nowadays.
1: Heck yeah, that is a great answer. I'm interested on how traditional tattoo artists have responded to the development of of Neotrad. So as an example, and this might sound like a funny example, but so I grew up playing uh, punk and hardcore and I grew up playing specifically hardcore and and like a really specific niche kind of hardcore. For me, growing up in music, you get this sense of like, this is what hardcore is. But then like some group of people over there, over there starts doing something different and you're like, that's not hardcore. And you start getting weird about it and then like kind of judgmental and I guess like a little gatekeepy. It's like, this is what the sound is. And I shouldn't say guess, like I would say like gatekeepy, like fully, because you're like, this is what the sound is. Mm -hmm. And then being very, negative about things that are growing until it becomes so good and so popular where you're like, okay, I guess that's cool. And it just overpowers your your rejection of it. Totally. And there's some things I can look back musically and be like, no, that was corny and shall forever be corny. 100%. And there are other things where I'm like, no, that was super cool, but I couldn't see it because I, I was like, I was afraid of what a, a, a change in sound meant for the thing that I was a part of. Absolutely.
0: A and I
1: want things to be familiar and safe and in my uh, my little place. And I, I think like, as you're talking about Neotrad, I just imagine there must've been some tattoo artists that were like, now, what, what are you doing? This is how we do it. But
0: there's, there's definitely like two big parties in that kind of respect. <laughs> like you got your loyal to the coil, like, fuck all these stupid dildo rotary pen bullshit, (laughs) fuck all these dumb, like, these guys that are just like, we want misogyny, we want, it's a boys club and everyone's gonna be using machines that are gonna ensure that you have rotator cuff injuries for the rest of your life. (laughs) But um, you got a lot of tattooers that are just like, we're all doing the same hustle. My perspective is that like, ultimately, there's more tools available to uh, respond to a bigger community of tattoo artists. And at the end of the day, like, if you can use a machine that gives you a quality tattoo that lasts the test of time, who the hell am I to tell you what to do with it? Um, and going back to the hardcore thing, I am a 2006 like, elder emo, you are preaching to the choir. I like, oh my God, I'm so old. Like, I see all these like new like, young kids now, with this new generation of like emo, and I'm like, back in my day, back in 2005, there was this band and this is what you did, and that was the core program, and that's what, <laughs> like, I'm like, oh my God,
1: <laughs> I feel you. <ya. laughs> it comes from a good place. Like, I, I think it's like kind of a good time to just talk about gatekeeping here because, like, very often when I hear people talking about gatekeeping, myself included, it's a like, other people do that. And I, I would never do that. And a while ago, I really like thought hard and I was like, no, man, I've totally, I've totally done that. And I didn't do it intentionally. But like, if you're into something and you believe in something, you care about it and, and you're passionate about it. It's part of your identity. Absolutely. And 100 When something different uh, different starts happening, some people naturally are like, "Hell yeah, different things that doesn't threaten me," and other people are like, "Different things that threatens me."
0: Totally, it threatens your identity. It feels like
1: totally. And like I'm not like I'm not at all excusing on any level uh, gatekeeping. Uh, what I'd say is like maybe encourage people to kind of n- not always talk about it as if it's something that other people do, when in fact it's probably something that a lot of a lot of people do Definitely. unintentionally or intentionally on some level, either like very profoundly or, or just a little bit. And I think the more we talk about it and, and kind of like talk about how like where it comes from and why it happens and like kind of laugh about it while also working through it, I think it's an overall healthy thing. In the industry that you're in though, it is very well known for gatekeeping. Is, so what can you tell us It about is it? almost
0: paramount to the industry. And I say that because tattooing is a self-governed industry. So in a lot of ways, like, I know I'm not trying to promote gatekeeping, but like, I do think in some ways, like there are gates that are meant to be closed for certain people for certain reasons. That being said, those reasons are reasons that I feel like should be across the board. Like things like if you have poor um, bloodborne pathogen education, if you have um, poor, really poor customer service skills that are going to maybe be derived from bigotry, so your clients are going to be treated not the way that they deserve to. Like certain things like that that are point blank toxicity to the industry. Yeah, I think some of that you should probably, that can be gate kept, but we're not gonna gate keep people from tattooing because they're women or because they're people of color or because they have maybe different disabilities or just different things about them that are not necessarily typical to the rest of the like, population. Tattooing at the end of the day is like one of the most human practices I think we can do as humans. We all have skin, it's our biggest organ. And it's been something we've been changing for millennia at this point. So like gates to be kept closed should be closed to a very small subset of people that shouldn't be in the industry in the first place. The bigger issue that we're dealing now in contemporary kind of tattoo culture is that those old boy, old school boys club gates, they need to be eradicated and they should have never been put up in the first place. Yeah, gatekeeping in the tattoo industry, it's, it's, I don't know, it's different. It's, it's just got a different relationship, I feel like, to other kind of industries just because there's no government intervention.
1: Yeah, well, that self-governing piece is is super interesting. So like when I worked as a therapist, it is highly regulated. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, when I started specifically in uh, addiction and mental health, it was not like regular, it was like the Wild West. Like really? I I started working in addiction mental health early 2000s, like maybe 2000. And basically anyone, especially addictions, could become like an addiction, a frontline addiction counselor. So not a frontline worker, which is really, really important work. Um, And the requirements for a frontline worker still today are are quite like achievable from people from different, all sorts of different educational backgrounds. Uh, But when I became an addiction counselor, it was like, pretty much like you just went to like a weekend course for a year and then you could do it oh my
0: god it was pretty wild that's wild
1: and then it, it started ramping up ramping up ramping up um it was actually quite a bit more strict in the states although it was also chronically underpaid in Canada especially Western Canada it was pretty low bar to get in and then now it's like you know to be in a do like proper therapy uh, therapeutic practice um and to not like to be able to like really be in that seat you have to have a master's level and some people have been like grandfathered in uh, on that but it's like you have to have a master's level and i don't think because someone has a master's level that means they're a good therapist or good with people or anything like that but it's a very very regulated industry so all the things that we're talking about in terms of like gatekeeping there would be mostly around things like education but you know like education can be a type of gatekeeping in and of itself absolutely
0: 100 percent
1: And I've met many very talented helpers who um, could be of great service to people uh, and also like amazing uh, people who could do fantastic therapy. It's just they either couldn't afford education. um, They just didn't thrive in a a formal education environment. Um, They were they had family commitments. They just couldn't manage it like whatever it is. And they weren't able to do that. So there's like even in the formal world, there's like a level of gatekeeping. But in the world that i'm in now which is coaching it's like man there's no regulation like any person could just be like i'm a i'm a coach do you think that has to do
0: with like social media and that like it's just like it's just like available to people like the opportunity to like yeah like it's a catch-22 there almost right like
1: yeah like i love the idea that people can I, I like helping people. So I love that people can help. Um, but when you said like some go- gates should be closed at like at least a little bit, like if you are positioning yourself as someone who can help people, but you don't have the skill to do it, you have the intent and the will and the desire, but you actually aren't skilled at it, you should not do it no matter if you like to do it. And I would imagine that would be the same with tattooing.
0: Yeah, 100%. Like it's it's something that like you don't know if you're going to be good at it until you do it. Ugh. So right, So like there's artists that can pick it up you know, relatively quick. They're, you know, they're proficient, they're quick learners, but like, that could be skills and things that they've learned from past experiences in their lives too. So like, it's it's kind of hard to say, like, I've seen my friends and other artists that have taken on apprentices that have been like, you know what, this ain't gonna work. Like, six months in, a year in, like the, the, the skill set just isn't there. The intent could be there, the drive could be there. And that's the killer. That's the worst part is when you gotta say no to someone that really, really wants to. But at the end of the day, um that finished tattoo on that client is so much more important than your thoughts and
1: opinions point blank period well and that like basic skill level of being able to do something like as an example i'm i cannot draw at all so like i could fundamentally not tattoo uh, but i could be adjacent to the culture I, totally you know if you cared you could do something
0: you can 100 percent be involved in the industry without having to do the actual like Thing of the like think about how many people are involved in the music industry mm. like it's not just musicians there is a plethora of people behind the scenes that are just as involved that are not in the direct creation of music another big thing that's changed the industry is just like it's so much more available with social media and with the internet like back in the old days like how in the hell were you gonna get supplies if you didn't know where to get because you had to build your old supplies like you had to build your needles you had to build your machines like nowadays you can buy everything pre-made on amazon like you could buy an entire setup for your you know your hypothetical setup for your your tattoo station from amazon for less than like 200 bucks and you just need a business license from your city and you could be a tattoo artist on Is Monday. that a
1: good thing or a bad thing?
0: It's a catch 22. It's a catch 22. Like when I'm low on supplies and I'm like, oh shit, I need to order some gloves, Amazon. Thank you, Mr. Bezo, Boop will here okay. tomorrow. It's great for me. Mm-hmm. But when it's like a couple, like I, I had a talk at a school recently, uh, like a high school, and the teacher was like, can you please get it into these kids' head that like, don't buy your little Dragon Hawk machines on Amazon for 150 bucks. And you and your friends are like tattooing each other like in the school bathroom. Oh my God, we can't do that because like, it's available to people, but like the work to like do it properly hasn't been done. So like, we have all these issues nowadays with like these artists that are like, again, just opening up shop without having to do any of like the critical training. Part of that, going back to gatekeeping, is like, how the hell do you get an apprenticeship in 2023? Yeah, yeah. Like, the industry is shifting and changing and growing in some elements, but some parts are not growing as fast. And um, yeah, it's just it's it's just changing the whole dynamic of the industry.
1: Well, let's talk about apprenticeship, but also like you'd mentioned you had an apprenticeship and without mentioning the shopper names, uh, let's talk about apprenticeship in general, but let's start with your your first experience. Mm-hmm.
0: I dreamed of having this apprenticeship since I was a kid. Like I had in my head, like what it was gonna be, like this whole thing. And um, I got into the shop, I had to like bully my way in basically, which like is pretty standard, like whatever. Um, so I started off for probably like six months to a year of just like working on the weekends or during the days, like working in the front, so taking appointments, taking deposits, cleaning the shop, general kind of bitch work, which is normal that's what you should be doing. So yeah, so I did, you know, a few months of that or whatever. And then I was able to get the opportunity to start being as an official apprentice. I was tattooing at that point and was so excited because I'm like, yep, I did it. We're going. And then within less than a month, I had a machine in my hand and I had clients. What the fuck? That is so not how the ship is supposed to be ran. Um, So basically it it turned out that this shop is, it's an apprentice factory in, in the city, it's well known. They just take on apprentices. I was one of those kids that was able to learn relatively quickly. So I had clients relatively quickly and it was more about let's get these butts in these chairs and let's get some money made. And there was just no integrity across the board. So like I wanted to learn coil machines, for example, what I use nowadays. Um, because I started with like the little wand machines, which again are fine, pretty standard nowadays. And my mentor told me straight to my face that they were a waste of fucking time and not to ask them again. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what? Like machine building and machine maintenance used to be such an integral part of the apprenticeship, but nowadays it's it's just totally different. But basically like I was there for eight months and by the eighth month mark, I thought if this is what it means to be in this industry, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, it was working six days a week, hustling my ass, making next to no money. And I'm like, why am I working this full-time job without getting the proper training? And then luckily enough, um, there was another shop in the city, the one that I work at now in Lethbridge, that um, there was an artist at that shop that I was at that had dipped probably about a year later, and I had known her, and she'd been tattooing this for like seven years. And so they let me join their shop kind of as like a mint pseudo apprentice. Um, So they were able to show me the shit that I was not taught at the other place and let me grow independently, but also let, they also were very, very helpful in guiding me with questions that I had. So in a nutshell, I just, I finally got the opportunity to get into a shop. It was not what I wanted it to be. Um, And luckily I was given like a second opportunity by some fucking grace of God to kind of restart in some ways.
1: Going back to your earlier comment, like tattooing is basically like, you know, self-regulated industry. So that would mean apprenticeship is also self-regulated.
0: Absolutely. There is nothing across the board. Like you talked to some people that had to pay $10,000 for their apprenticeship. You had to talk to people that were like basically like bullied into tattooing because their friends were like, you got to do this here, man. It's, It's like the experience is so diverse across the board, but like, there is one kind of subset of thought of like you'd get an apprenticeship. That's how you start officially. Um, because nowadays you see things like tattoo schools and tattoo classes, which are like causing such a fucking headache in the industry. Um, you Will
1: have tell us more about oh, that. Sure. Um, yeah. So
0: it's it, it's kind of it's hard because it's like people don't want to be gatekept. They want to learn how to tattoo. And so if someone could offer them a class and teach them like hypothetically, that could be like a cool thing. but. Not when the class is taught by someone who probably doesn't even have five years of industry experience. A class that's going to be called like two weeks long. How in the fuck are you going to a tattoo in two weeks? And like after that class is done, how are you going to get hired at a shop? Right. There's no shop that's going to look at that resume and go, Oh, for sure you went to so-and-so's, you know, two-week tattoo class. Like, no. And a lot of these classes are incredibly expensive. Like I had a friend out years ago that took one of them out in Toronto. And I was so fucking mad at her for not telling me that she was doing this because I know how much money she had to spend on it. So I got so mad at her and pretended that I was just jealous of her, but I was just like, oh my fucking God, girl, you spent $2,500 on a week long class and she doesn't do it anymore.
1: So like coaching is like, again, like basically an unregulated industry and you're working with people's lives, you're working with people's careers. So it's not therapy. It can have like connections, either like subtle or like totally direct. And it's totally unregulated. Now there are like coaching certifications you can get. And there are like coaching, you know, courses you can take and all of that. But again, it's like everything is just like stuff that's just made up by somebody. And some of that stuff is super good, really useful, gives you good standard practices, stuff to work with. Others other stuff is just like totally harky jerky. And there's also not like a oh, you're not good at this, so you shouldn't do it. It's the like, pay us the money, go through the course and like, you know, get a, get a passing grade and put up your shingle. Now, of course there's a, like, if I'm hiring a coach, we have a whole practice of how we hire coaches for our company. We didn't stop someone from just going out and coaching and doing stuff. And if someone's like good at talking and basically good at selling themselves, they could become a coach and actually be really bad at it and cause tons of harm. I, I've I've come across someone like this professionally, just really good at positioning themselves. And it's like, I love that coaching kind of has that Wild West feel to it, you know, where it's like, you just go in, if you're really, really good at it and you've can you got a lot of hustle, you can build something super special that does a lot of good. But also if you're like really conniving and manipulative and good at selling yourself, you can like go out and do some real damage. I'll go back to what you said, it's kind of like a catch 22. So like things like tattoo classes, like it sounds like people are seeing like, there's a lot of people who wanna be involved in industry. There's like a lot of like thirst to do it. And there's this old school way of doing it that wasn't perfect either. No. So there's people coming in and filling in that gap and being like, hey, we'll give you this thing, we'll give you this shiny certificate, and now you're a tattooer. Yep, yep. Some are good, some are bad. There's like all this wild variety. How do you create something that actually creates a healthy pipeline for people where the right ga- gates are actually kept shut like the right, I hate to say it like the right people, but people with the right intent, the right talent, the right abilities, um, from a variety of people. How do you create that pipeline that's a little bit healthier from what has been, and then also some of these like some modern fly-by-night courses?
0: I think it comes down to like examining like what works with the old ways, what's working with the newer ways, and trying to find like a happy medium. I don't want to advocate for any type of governmental control in tattooing because I I don't want I don't want you know the the protesters come into my house burning my house down. <laughs> but um, I do think in some ways, like it would, I look to the states, like it goes state by state, but you have to be licensed to tattoo in America. The One thing that they're doing right, I guess, like, so they, there's some something there. I don't know, like if we, we could have some like AHS mandated bloodborne pathogen training. I, I kind of think that might be applicable nowadays. It's tricky because like we see, I think a lot of it has to do with like social media too. We see, the best of the best with artists can put out the the the, the creme de la creme the de de the best work that they do but they don't show any of the, the the stuff that goes into creating that that particular piece so then we have these classes that are made that are quick accessible good to go so i don't know like i think it just needs to potentially be like a fundamental change in the industry like but who am i to say what that is you know like i can't speak for the industry i can't speak for people that have been in it for decades more than me that have way more practical or lived experience. Part of it too has to come down to like accessibility versus so newer stuff, newer classes, whatever you want to say, it's so much more accessible because it's something that you can just book online and DM someone you're good to go. Whereas an apprenticeship back in the old days you had to get tattooed by someone, put up with their abuse and bullshit for years and years and then you could finally tattoo. So like maybe it's take, making it accessible and taking down the certain gates from the old way. So like back in the old days, if you were a woman, you're able to try twice as fucking hard if you are a person of color, you're gonna have to try 4,000 times as hard if you're a queer person, good fucking luck. I don't know, I think we just need to have like more intersectionality when it comes to like our ideas of who and who cannot tattoo and like we need to expand of what it means to maybe even be an apprentice or what the apprenticeship actually looks like. So maybe instead of it being a year of scrubbing toilets and then a year of cleaning tubes and making needles and then it's, you're finally into the industry, it's okay, what works best for each individual that's getting into the industry. So like maybe there are artists that would facilitate that apprenticeship better than other artists, a traditional apprenticeship, where there's other artists that could say, hey, I know that you have commitments with your family and you're not available five days a week. Like we can do it maybe on a different schedule with different activities that are still applicable, but aren't maybe you know building needles or scrubbing tubes anymore.
1: But that's such a cool answer. An industry like this is so cool because it's unregulated, right? And it's not like, not tons of rules. Like part of what's awesome about getting tattooed is just like going to get tattooed by someone you're like, oh, this is totally just like a relatable experience. Yeah. I'm in a shop that's comfortable. I'm with people. There's like great music playing. Maybe there's something funny that we're all watching. Everyone's just chopping it up. Having a good day. Having a good day. Right. Having fun. That sense of like, you know, you don't want it to become corporatized either. No. But how do you get a group of people globally at this point? Uh, at this point, to be like, hey, you know what? This is really how we should look about creating like a pipeline ta- of talent and creating that space of like true intersectionality. Like, how do we do that? And I don't think you can do it. And I love what you said is like, listen, how do I speak for a whole industry? I always refer back to hardcore. It's like, when someone says to me like, that's what hardcore is about. I'm like, that's what hardcore is about to you. Totally. How you grew up where you're at, what kind of hardcore you like, all of that kind of stuff. Hardcore is like like such an indefinable thing.
0: Oh, absolutely. Like, I think that's so applicable to tattooing, even like what it means to be like hardcore in Southern Alberta, Canada? What does it mean to be hardcore as a woman in South Korea? What does it mean to be in these certain subcultures in different parts of the world with different lived experiences? And I think that's super applicable to tattooing. Like I think in North America, we have such a western like idea of what it means to like be in tattooing and we are the you know antithesis of what it means to be in this industry and it's like we don't fucking know shit like we don't know goddamn nothing comparatively if we're talking historically here as well yeah i think in tattooing the the best thing we can do is like acknowledge that and go back to like we're all doing the same hustle we all at the end of the day want to create beautiful artwork that our clients love that will continue our legacy for longer than we ever can So yeah, I don't know. I think it's an ego check too, at the end of the day. Maybe that's the big thing is we just need an ego check (laughs) as tattoo artists.
1: Well, totally. And that ego check is like, whether it's professionally or creatively or music or subculture, whatever, that ego check of like, well, who am I to speak for everyone? But what can I do in my world? And let's talk about your world and uh, what you're doing, the shop you work at, and how you're going about creating that real sense of like belonging for for people. So what's the shop that you work at now?
0: Um, so in Calgary, I work at a shop called Blackbird Electric Tattoo. And in Lethbridge, I work at a shop called Black Magic Collective. Both shops have a very similar, they both have a very similar culture that I am wanting to build in my own career. So in Lethbridge, the shop is, it's a collective, so it's actually divided physically down the wall, or down the middle with a wall. Um, Half of it's um, tattooing, half of it's hairstyling. The owners are best friends. One's a tattoo artist, one's a hairstylist. They just wanted to work together. So they were like, fuck it, let's open our own space together. Um, So it's fabulous. Like it's owned by women. They're both queer women. um, And it's just a wonderfully inclusive space. Like it's completely accessible by like wheelchair. We, there's no steps. We have tons of retail space available for local vendors to come in and put their stuff up. Um, We have a very inclusive policy that anyone who walks in gets treated the exact same. Being a space owned by women and, you know, lots of queer people in there, we have such an interesting and diverse, uh, like, range of clientele to come in there. You know, anywhere from, you know, older women that just want to come in and get their weekly blowout with their little uh, curlers to, you know, lots of young trans people to you know you're kind of quote-unquote rig pigs like it's it's kind of a wonderful environment we have in there because we have you walk into the space and it is acknowledgement that there is absolutely no fucking bullshit here at all it is a space where there's no judgments there's no this or that Uh, it's just you're here you're loved you're supported and you're gonna have the best experience possible and that same kind of culture is definitely here in calgary too um carrie she has she runs a fucking awesome show like she's so good um it's owned by you know It's carries tattooing for like 20 years it's it's such a good space um because there's just there's no avenue for bigotry there's no avenue for there to be any type of of negativity so we have again a beautifully diverse range of clientele to come in there. Um, but we provide things like if you need blankets and pillows. Like that's so wild to me to say out loud that there's some shots where you go into there and you can you can't even get a fucking blanket if you're cold. We ensure that we have like snacks available, that there's water available. If you um don't want to listen to music, I've got, you know, headphones and earplugs you can put in if you don't want to listen to the sound. Like we do things in an effort to make the client comfortable that haven't been kind of across the board for a majority of this industry's kind of longevity in North America at least. And it's wild to even say that out loud because i'm just thinking about the like in an industry that's self-regulated we do so little to ensure that our clients are comfortable and that our clients have a good experience so in my industry and my my particular practice i want to make sure that anyone who walks into my door is treated appropriately and respectfully a lot of my clientele are queer people and i tattoo predominantly women and a lot of those people have had really fucking bad experiences in other tattoo shops so i feel like it's my job and my duty to change that mindset to change that That experience to know that like you can walk into a tattoo shop and it doesn't have to be, you know, a bunch of gross old white cis men staring at your tits the entire fucking appointment because you have a dumb artist that made you take your shirt off to get a wrist tattoo. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. a lot I want to unpack there. I do want to give a shout out to Carrie. Um, Do you know the story of how we got introduced? No. Um, We asked Carrie to to be on the podcast, and Carrie said, "Hey, listen, I get a lot of uh, I get a lot of opportunity to interview. I've been very fortunate." Like. Uh, being in the position I am, I'm in, people want to talk to me about stuff, and there's a whole generation of artists who come from backgrounds who are queer, trans, uh, people of color who aren't getting those kinds of opportunities. So I'm gonna, uh, kind, I'm gonna thankfully decline, but I want to, I want to suggest two people.
0: Carrie is like, ugh, like, she's everything this industry needs. She's, Isn't that so cool? <laughs> like fuck, like, and she would never, she would never say that. She would never ever tell Mason or that.
1: Like no. Um, it stood out to me so much because, like you know, there's like that when someone asks you to speak on anything. Like you spoke at a high school recently. Totally, yep. It feels good. Yeah,
0: you're being validated. You're like, ah, oh, someone was, you know, someone else wants to hear my opinion.
1: You're taking that feel good moment where you're like, and you know, it's like it. It's good to feel good, and it's great if you're being if you're being identified as someone who's got something to say, but to be able to be like. Hey, that feels good thank you and let's give other people a platform so they can share their ideas they can inspire people they can do those things like that was a straight up like one of the coolest moves that we've experienced in this podcast and i'd say as a business person i was like yeah that's what it's all about
0: damn i got a lot of respect for her she's been tattooing me for a long time i'm like a little like speechless like damn i i kind of thought she was like oh yeah like you should also like do this like talk to them too they're cool
1: we came back and we were like well, let's interview everyone. Let's interview them and interview. You know, and then she was like, okay, great, but they go first. It's like, okay, we got it. You know, like it's, so it was cool. It was a really, I wanna give a shout out to that.
0: Yeah, you know, Carrie is great. Like she's definitely one of those people that can like, she acknowledges her privilege and acknowledges like the opportunities, opportunities that she has but also stands for absolutely fucking no more negativity, no more nonsense in this industry and being a queer person under her. Like it just feels really safe and really, really fucking sick to like know that you're going to walk into work. And like, if someone wants to call me a fucking tranny to my face, like I can, uh, before I can even turn around and look at them, Carrie's going to be like curb stomping them. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's cool. It's cool because like there's been so many trans tattooers before me, tons and tons and tons. But like, why isn't that why isn't this lived experience everyone's lived experience? You know, like, yeah. Sorry.
1: Well, let's let's go into that feeling of safe. So um, when you're talking about, and let's just kind of go globally at first. It's like, you know, most people have had like tough experiences in their lives. And people who get involved in the subculture of tattooing, some people are just into it because like, hey, I want to get some nice tattoo. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. And a lot of people are drawn to it because they're part of a subculture. And the reason they're part of a subculture or an identity group is because they've had certain experiences or they grew up in a way where they just, they identified differently and they felt like on the outside. And tattooing is such a important part of kind of finding your voice. Like I remember like my first tattoo was like a real statement about like what I believed in. And it's, I still believe in it now. And it, it really mattered to me. Um, so a lot of people have had tough experiences when they're coming to the tattoo shop stack that on top of it like all the different kinds of trauma and difficulties that people can be experiencing so you as a tattoo artist what steps do you take to kind of take into account people's like many varying life stories and difficulties and challenges that would have led them to getting tattooed by you in the first place
0: so i think my lived experience as um, a woman for 24 years. I didn't start transitioning until I was 24. I think it's really allowed me to be like way more self-aware um, of of certain people's experiences than of people that have like a, like a live cis experience. Like I understand what it means to walk into a tattoo shop as a woman and be fucking terrified. And I don't want anyone else to experience that feeling again. Cause that shouldn't, you shouldn't be walking into a place where you intend on giving someone money for a service and be fucking scared. Like what the fuck is that about, you know? So, like, I'm very cognizant that, like, um, I ensure that, like, people are empowered to do what's best for them and their body. So, like, I tell people, like, bring the clothing that fits you. Like, if you are uncomfortable, if we're doing a chess piece, I need to have your breasts shown. Um, let's ensure that we're scheduling maybe on a day where there's no one else there. Let's ensure that we have the proper, um, like, draping and shading around. We, we have these prop-up things you can put up to block views or that we have the proper clothing even available at the shop like why why don't we have why don't tattoo shops have robes like that's something i talk about all the time like just a basic robe like like a hair styling robe that you can have your client wear inside out for a back piece tied up they're good to go like why why are we not doing like very basic things for people to ensure that they're more comfortable but again i think that goes back to maybe the fact that tattooing is like a boys club and like if you're not made to be aware of other people's lived experiences, because your lived experiences has been, like, the- the creme de la creme, why would you be cognizant of anyone else's pain when you haven't experienced it the first, or in the first place? I just- I want to make sure that when people have the best experience possible, um, I want to make sure that when trans people walk in that they know that their pronouns are going to be respected, that they know that if anyone says anything to them or looks at them, that, no, and I, it's just not going to be tolerated. Um, so, yeah, I just I want to make sure that that I leave this industry better than I leave it better than what it was when I came into it, and that I empower my clients to to ensure
1: that they have those experiences. Tattooing is so different than so many other uh, industries where people are literally in physical pain and they're revealing parts of their body and you're there, you know, psychologically, physically, all of those things. It can be quite quite taxing should tattoo artists take into into account more than someone's basic like physical needs
0: absolutely 110 fucking percent there's a self-inflicted wound being hap- being done that is beyond just the actual pain of like what's going on in their skin like it's a mental thing it's an emotional thing it's an all-encompassing experience so we need to as artists acknowledge that like there's more to it than just us holding that machine to the skin and you know, putting that ink into the skin. Like, we need to understand that, like, there are people that have, like, for example, I've got lots of autistic clients that are, like, very sensitive to noise and certain sounds. We have female clients that are, like, very triggered and uncomfortable being in certain spaces with certain people. And as tattoo artists and as just service providers in general, like, we need to be more cognizant and aware of that and, like, take accountability and responsibility for that. We can't, like, continue doing what we're doing, like, in the past in certain ways and then have the rest of the industry speed up and grow you know like and i feel like a lot of those kind of old ideologies people that are holding on to them they're holding on to them and they're just they're fucking loud and they're not nearly as kind of a big group as i think that like we think that they are Um, They're just loud and annoying and just don't want change and just don't want to have to be accountable for the way that they've treated their clients for the last 25 or 30 years. It's just, it's really awful when you're tattooing a client and you're having a great experience with them and you're ensuring that they're having a good time and they talk about like, oh yeah, yeah, I got this tattoo and then I got this tattoo, I got this tattoo and then they tell you about what happened. And it's like, it doesn't matter what the actual imagery is. It's like what actually happened to that is so much more important than what is on the skin.
1: Yeah. That that's such an interesting idea because then you have like a a visual memento of a bad experience. Mm-hmm. That uh, I love how you just said it. It's like people aren't even talking about the tattoo; they're talking about what happened to them when they're getting the tattoo. Totally. So, in terms of like industry change, and again, I'm not asking you to speak for the whole industry. I know I know that's uh, daunting and and challenging. It seems to me from when I first started getting tattooed. Um, I've only, I don't want to say only, but I've largely had positive experiences with people that I find to be really welcoming, friendly, like easy, and also got all sorts of privileges that are I that are a part of my of my lifestyle where I can understand I could walk into a lot of different situations and get treated a certain way. Mm -hmm. Um, but from a fan of getting tattooed, but not someone who's ever worked in the industry, it does seem that as a whole, the industry is starting to shift and increasingly quickly towards more of a welcoming intersectional space um from my perspective do you, does that seem right to you
0: um i would think so i would say so at least and in, and in, in i could also just be in my little bubble too where like i have um, the people that i surround myself with are people that obviously coincide with what i want to do with my industry with my career so like i'm friends with like a lot of other queer tattoo artists a lot of female tattoo artists um yeah, like, the, the the people that I keep in my circle, I, I know are good people. There, I'm sure there's there's tons and tons of us that want nothing more than to just cause mayhem and havoc, truth be told. But um, yeah, I feel like the ones of us that want positivity, that want change, and that want the best for this industry typically stick together, and I think people in the community can see that. There, there's this old mentality to a tattooing that it's not, they're not cognizant of like how important it is to like be a good person to your clients. Because back in the old days, that really wasn't anything anyone was held accountable for. But nowadays, bringing back to social media, like if you have a bad experience, that client is gonna post a story about you, they're gonna post a post about you, that's gonna get shared about you. Like it can ruin your fucking career.
1: I'm exposed mostly to artists that I I have some kind of like similar thinking to. So (laughs) like I can't speak to like what's going out there in the greater world. (laughs) But it does seem from my perspective that there is a change happening. What other frontiers need to be hit on? Like, what are the things you need to push harder on from your perspective about like really changing the industry?
0: We need to like keep eradicating this old boys club bullshit because there's still a lot of tattoo artists, a lot of cis male tattoo artists that have that mentality of like, they kind of maybe put the front on of like, you know, we're inclusive or this or that, but they're still DMing all their clients, you know, the day after the tattoo, trying to get on their pants or they're at conventions doing abysmal things after hours or they're, they want their cake and eating it too, I guess. So like in that respect, we need to ensure that we're still pushing those people and calling them out and holding them accountable. I think a lot of these people have never been accountable for anything in their life because they live a life of such privilege. It's hard cause like a lot of it goes back to like social media, I feel like. A lot of it with like how fast this industry has grown. So like we need to also take into account like what we're doing now on social media isn't gonna be applicable in a year to two years to five. Who knows what the fuck's gonna happen in five years, you know? like. So yeah, the landscape is definitely changing and we just need to keep pushing forward for positivity, for inclusion, and for
1: accountability. All right. Let's start talking about you specifically. All right. Grew up in uh, Southern Alberta, a small town. Yep. So tell us about that.
0: So I grew up in a small town called Picture Butte. Um, it's, about 1,700 people growing up there. There might be like 1,900 now, maybe. <laughs> but um,
1: so big, big boom,
0: big boom, big boom. No cow town. It's definitely a Lot alley around there. Um, my my, I come from an agricultural background as well. My dad's a dryland farmer. Yeah, grew up in the small town. Um, I don't understand, but I had a really good childhood experience. I am a weird, like you know, emo kid listening to music as you know as soon as I, you know, as soon as I could. Had you know different I was interested in like different subcultures and different types of pop culture. But I never got bullied. I never got made fun of. I got along with like everyone at my school. I got good grades. i maybe it was just very unremarkable for the most part, and people just kind of ignored me but um i had a good experience <laughs> like, You're
1: like the first person who's ever said that <laughs>
0: <laughs> like, i don't know like maybe that's how people took me and i'm like whatever i made sure that i like had very few self-esteem issues as an adult like i i don't know i just never i there was only really bullying that went on at our school but like i just why wasn't i at the target of it but yeah, yeah. um yeah like it grew up Yeah, so I had a a good high school experience. I like was kind of a boring kid. Like I worked all the time at a local gas station. I like played some sports as a kid. I was drawing all the time though. Like if I wasn't working, I was up in my room drawing, listening to the Black Parade on repeat, on repeat, on repeat. Um, So yeah, like I, I just, kept to myself and did my thing. And then when I uh, wanted to go to university, I went to the University of Lethbridge because they have a really, really good art program. Uh, their studio art program is really, really fabulous. So I went there and that was that was so critical to becoming the person that I am nowadays. i met so many people. My core group of friends are all friends I've met in university. The networking advantages that it gave me, I mean, my university experience was across the board really, really great as well. Um, so yeah, I uh, went to art school did the art school thing, got out, worked for around five years or so, and then was finally able to get into the industry and build my career, and it'll be three years in July.
1: When Monica did the pre-interview with me with you, I saw something that made me laugh so hard. So first, let's start with like the beginning, beginning, though. So when did you first get introduced into any thing about tattoos or tattoo culture? So
0: I, I remember this like, like it was yesterday. It was 2005, um, I had went to HMV, and I bought this cd it was called life on the murder scene and it was a it was my chemical robins like dvd diary of like their last album yeah. um, and i remember watching it and the vocalist gerard way he was the first person i ever heard talk about going to art school and talk about queer culture because he talked about he's like i used to go to art school and drag because it was really funny and i still think that that particular DVD and that band are so critical to the person I am today. So like I remember watching that, it was like maybe like an hour and a half long. So him talking about um, art school, queer drag culture, and then the guitarist Frank Aero talked about tattooing because he was like this little short little shithead. And he was like, I got a scorpion on my throat the second we started the band so I could not get a normal job. And I was like, I'm fucking doing that too. And within about six months of touch, I got my entire throat blasted. <laughs> my mama was not happy. But, um, yeah, and that's, that's yeah, so My Chemical Romance and that DVD diary, I guess, is really what got me into it. Um, I th- I think as a kid, like, the reason that I've always been so empowered and I've never really tolerated any bullshit was that, like, as a kid, like, I got to watch, like, my idols, like, tell me that what I wanted to do was, was right and was valid. So... Yeah, just finding supports, I guess, via music that are integral to me is growing my interest in kind of figuring out what the fuck I was as an
1: adult. Yeah, and that's one of those things that I, I see a lot on the show, and I hope I hope people hear whether you're into punk or not into punk or emo or hardcore or whatever it is. It's like the power of just a bunch of people getting together who can play barely barely play their instruments. Hardly. <laughs> hardly play their instruments. Creating something, even if it's just a local demo, you do not know how that's gonna change so many people's lives.
0: Just community as a whole, like finding a group of other fucking nerds that just you jive with, like it can be just integral to like becoming the person that you wanna be. Music is so, going back to music, it's, it's, so, it's so interesting like how vital music is to like so many different subsects of our life and how wow. influential it is like. I still like, I remember like my first CD I ever listened to was my older sister. She gave me Yellow Cards Ocean Avenue and that was the first city I ever lived I think I still have it actually truth be told and like sitting on my bed and like listening and like going through the album artwork and like following the lyrics on the little album artwork like yeah back in the old days
1: wow yeah I okay um bringing it back to tattooing though because we could talk we could nerd out on music (laughs) bring it back to tattooing though like these are the three things that I started laughing at when I was reading it and not laughing in a negative way I was like this is my age speaking where I was like oh that was the audience for, for this thing, tattoo shows. So that was like a big gateway for you, right? <laughs> totally,
0: yeah. Oh my God, like I remember watching Miami Ink and seeing Kat Von D, which like we could, oh, we could talk about that. But seeing her and like, holy shit, like because back then it was pre-transition, right? Like seeing a tattooed woman and being like, Holy shit. Like these guys I have in my ear telling me that I, that I, what I want to do is cool. And now I'm seeing it on TV, like the power of representation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now, I mean, it's so different nowadays, but like that was so big in seeing like, okay, my parents might be telling me that like this is dumb and stupid, but like that, that, that's not lying to me. You know,
1: which, which of the tattoo shows was your favorite? Which was the most impactful?
0: Oh, LA Inc. The, the, the dumb cap on D show, her making that high voltage tattoo shop. Like, she was really really influential to me as a kid like just seeing like an empowered female tattoo artist um i think my opinion of hers obviously changed since then but that was really really big that was actually really really big seeing someone on television who looked like me we were both very tall had long dark hair you know this or that um yeah
1: i loved the show. So I watched I watched Miami, Inc. And for me, I was already getting tattooed at that point. So it's like when I say who's the audience, I'm like, I didn't even think what the audience would be like for a younger generation. Um, I loved Miami, Inc. I was like, It's so bad, but so good. Well, there's there's people with like hardcore connections in there. So I was always like, that's so cool. That guy's in there. That guy's friends with Hatebreed. Like, I would just be like, I loved it. You know, everything's got to have a storyline. So I'd be like, Oh, 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 the story oh it's
0: it, like, wh- I, yeah, it's wild. Like I remember on la Inc like whether my chemical romance guitar is breaking air, or he got tattooed and the whole story like at one point she's late and he's like stalking their like back room with sodas and helping the front girl with appointments I'm like what the hell what the fuck is this going on in here with this television shit? but yeah it's yeah thinking back I haven't thought about that for years now but like how influential that was maybe more on me than I'm co- even cognizantly aware of as a kid
1: it, it was like I I I think it was totally cool. Shout out to Dan Smith. Uh love you for Dan is a friend of the show. Great, great person. I've uh, seen
0: him live and he, he's he, his music is so good. He's such a such a cool dude. Uh
1: Dan is wonderful. Wife Scully's wonderful. Uh that whole crew of people down there runs a great shop, great bands. Um
0: Is he still is it the Deer and Departed? Is he still or is that uh, is No, that he's project? doing a
1: band called Sharp Shock now. Oh, and they are sick. Cool. Really, really good. Uh, shout out to Dan. Um, but those shows were a huge thing for you. So you've got, um, you get the shows, you're seeing those, you've got My Chemical Romance. Tell us about writing the essay to your parents.
0: Uh, (laughs) uh, So like initially, so the, the, the first essay, I think I started it when I was like 14. Um, Because I wanted to get it it first start with a piercing. because I was like, well, let's start off with piercings because like before we get into the tattoo, because I already knew that my parents were like, it was not going to be a thing. Like, These are conservative parents. My dad has never left a small town. You know, like, so I wrote them a the first essay was a, I think it was like a two or three page essay on getting an industrial piercing, which is like a cartilage piercing. It's like two and there's a bar thing.
1: Now, did they ask you to write an essay or were you like I did, no, no, no,
0: I'm gonna do it because like, no, I'm gonna do it because they're gonna be like, you don't know, I know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, I'm not gonna go into this without being
1: completely backed up. So like, this was a young person who's like, I want this to happen, but I know if I just go and talk to them about it, it's gonna become a battle. So instead I'm gonna do my research, put together like essentially like my business plan. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I remember like when I got my first tattoo, like same kind of thing. Did I have to write an essay for that one? I don't know. I probably did. I, the the piercing one I remember because I remember going on Google and like finding clip art and putting it into like the Word document so they had like a, a visual reference <laughs> for the stupid piercing.
1: How did they respond to the essay? Like, did they know it was incoming?
0: I think my parents are kind of like, what the fuck? What the fuck? And now we talk about nowadays and like Christ almighty, you were a fucking weird kid. And I'm like, it hasn't changed. Like, I've always known what I've wanted. I've always been empowered by some something and like I'm not embarrassed in any way shape or form with what I want to do so I think they're kind of I think initially as a kid they're kind of like okay whatever but now they're kind of like oh okay now seeing what you've done with the rest of your life like okay it makes sense that like you would go out of your way to ensure that like what you're getting into you know 110% what you're doing
1: so you sold them on the idea of the piercing definitely was it Based on the power of the essay and a conversation about it, or were there multiple conversations?
0: I think it was it was multiple conversations, and I think they got to the point where they're like, this kid's going to do it anyway, because they're getting to an age that they can, they can do whatever they want to do, and we can continually fight them, or we can just kind of put our hands up. And I got my first tattoo when I was 17. It was a bass clef on my hip. It's been very much covered up at this point. <laughs> But um, I remember walking in there, my mom signed the paperwork and she was out. She, she was done. She, before she dotted the, that eye, she was like you know, 10 feet out the door. I remember I got a couple of those tattoos and then I got my first half sleeve, which is this like um, uh, Apollo and Daphne Greek statue thing. And I remember like I got it done at a convention. So I sat in a shitty little chair for like eight hours with my arm all contorted. I got home really late, like probably one o'clock in the morning from the convention and the next morning, I showed her, and I was like fully prepared to be like, okay, I, I'm I'm moving out because I, I was like just turned 18, like maybe, I maybe was like six months into it, and uh, I was like, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to move out. Let's, I'm gonna I look at a few apartments, this or that or whatever. I showed my mom, and she was a little like taken aback, and then she was like, that's really really nice. I can't really give you shit for that. I'm like. I did it! So just between like getting higher quality tattoos, like picking artists that I, I felt like could do. And I think too like just being in like, knowing so much about tattooing as a kid, like I was able to kind of pick out like, who is half decent, who is not half decent with my limited kind of range of experience. So yeah, I think just like going in, knowing what I wanted and then actually following through and doing it, they're kind of like, oh, this this, this kid actually means they're, 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 they're talking the way they're walking, so and that's followed me into like my adulthood nowadays like my parents know that if i say i'm going to do something it's it's going to get done
1: yeah so from a young age you were like pretty pretty much focused on i'm into something i'm all the way into it but i'm going to research it learn about it and i'm going to do it but i want to do it in a way that you're feeling brought along and i'm informing you about it definitely um so when we think about like as you've grown older and you've said earlier on like you're very very loud and proud about being a trans queer male what was the transition like uh, from both your own story about it and also like bringing your parents along
0: um it was really interesting i i feel like my experience across the board should be the experience across the board like i sat my parents down sat my whole family down um aside from my one sister and I just was up front with them. I was like, I, this is the way I feel like, and as a kid, like I was a really big tomboy too when I was in elementary school. Like I, I definitely have been a little eccentric across the board. And I remember initially my mom was kind of upset. She was kind of like taken aback. <laughs> hey dad, good old conservative Bruce who just sitting in his chair, like, look at him. What do you expect? <laughs> like I just knew in that moment, I'm like, okay, we're going to be okay. It'll be cool, and like there nowadays, it's 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 a non-issue by any stretch. Like it's 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 all good. Like it's it's a non-issue. My dad occasionally will get my pronouns wrong, but it's like he calls my sister my brother's name half the time. So like you know, it's it's never like malicious. It's never anything like that. There's still like a lot of learning we have to do as a family, but for the most part, like my parents have been very accepting. My mom came with me when I had top surgery because I had to fly to Mississauga, and she like took care of me for like two or three weeks after. Like yeah, like my experience has been pretty pretty good for the most part
1: I love what you said about how your experience should be the experience that if um if people are going to transition that it should be like oh yeah cool okay like let's talk about it and then like it's let's figure it out let's figure out the best uh, the best path um but it's not and it's not for many many people and many many people have a range of experiences and I'd be interested in your perspective in two ways as a trans queer man what are the things that we should be doing from a societal level to be really thinking about like hey how do we how do we continue to normalize this and make and make this a more comfortable experience for people and also, from being someone within an industry that is, has got a lot of beautiful tradition and also some challenging tra- tradition. How do we make that um, more approachable and accepting uh, for people of all different kinds of backgrounds?
0: I feel like I give a really interesting perspective there because in transit, my transition is very different from a lot of people. Like, I went from being a woman to now being a six foot tall, cis passing white guy the amount of privilege I've gained in my transition is very different. Cause a lot of people transition and they lose privilege. They become this, this judged character in society. And I walk into a men's changing room and people move around me, you know, and that's not common. That's not common. So I like to take that, my lived experience as a woman, but also this experience as a man and acknowledging those privileges. I think a lot of it has to come with like us as individuals, like asking ourselves, like if we have, if we have like, Discomfort surrounding trans people, for example, like where does that discomfort stem from? Is it from a feeling of insecurity? Is it a feeling of societal pressure? Is it a feeling from systemic? Like where where is it coming from and like acknowledging that and trying to like unlearn why we feel that way? Because at the end of the day trans people have been here for as long as any other type of person has been here and we will continue to be here. We are ethereal. We have an incredibly like diverse like, life experience, like, we're fucking cool. So, like, the best thing I think that we can do as a a society is to acknowledge and try to unlearn these feelings that we have because, uh, like, for example, kids don't grow up to be transphobic if they haven't been taught to be transphobic you know so if we can try to unlearn these kind of issues that we have and just continually doing what we're doing like calling out bigotry trying to change the way that we like intellectualize certain things and ideas like trying to unlearn ideas of like heteronormativity trying to acknowledge that like we have certain privileges that other people don't and just by giving other people privileges we're not taking away any of our own like i think a lot of that comes down to people thinking that like by diversifying and expanding inclusion that They're going to lose some of those privileges that they have that they haven't really acknowledged before but like in all ways shape or form that just ensures that everyone can do what everyone else should be able to do so like yeah just unlearning acknowledging where those feelings come from and just being honest with yourself like if you're uncomfortable with a trans person beside you why why like statistically i'm not going to do anything to you like statistically you are much more likely to do something to me
1: you know um you'd said something earlier on that i i was uh, something I never even thought about, and it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to consider. You'd mentioned that most people, when they transition, lose privilege. In your case, you gain privilege. Definitely,
0: a hundred percent. Like I've always, like I've always been like tall. Like I'm about six feet tall. Um, I'm white, um, but now that I'm tra- like presenting as male, like I don't. People don't fuck with me. People don't fuck with me, and I can go, I can go up and talk to someone who looks like me talks to me sounds like me has no lived experience similar to me and they respect me to the point where they can be fucking scared of me like i've had it many times where like even like walking up to a group of women who maybe get com- uncomfortable or kind of cower and i have to say to myself like oh shit like they're afraid of you not because of you but because of what kind of the rest of the world has kind of done to them over you know their their entire lives so yeah it's it's very interesting my my lived experience is, is kind of weird but it's also provided me with like a lot of safety in Southern Alberta too, truth be told. Like being cis-passing and being tall, like I can walk into a men's washroom and I don't I don't have any issues for the most part. That being said, that doesn't mean that I don't have to like um, manage my behavior in certain ways to ensure that I'm safe. Cause just looking this way doesn't always verify that I'm gonna be safe. Um, it's also kind of sad that I even have to acknowledge that this provides me safety in the first place. You know, I think that says more about society than it does about me as a trans person.
1: It's just like, you know, being, uh, being someone who's just had like none of these experiences, the idea of like, oh, you literally have experienced when you have transitioned into your true identity that you're like, oh, actually, I actually have a lot more privilege now. I, it's like for someone like uh, who's got my life experience, it's like, oh, that makes so much sense. But also it's like, I would literally never have considered, considered that before. Is that something you've had to manage?
0: yeah it's because talking with other trans people too like in their lived experiences like i have a lot of trans feminine friends and like listening to them like talk about like they have to like hold their piss for like 10 hours a day sometimes because it's just not safe for them to use a a public washroom or like that they need to like they can't shop in public because if they're even perceived as male and they're shopping in women's clothing someone's going to say something to them or that like they can't date for the fear that like they'll be fucking killed like the life expectancy of a black trans woman in the united states in 2022 was less than 36 years old like what the ever-living fuck are we doing as a society that that's even something that should even be uttered like it's just it's just nuts. so like it's weird because like it's you have to acknowledge it and like accept it but like it just it fucking sucks seeing other people in your community that should have the exact same experience that you and they're not getting that experience and they'll never have that experience and it's not their fault in any way, shape, or form. It's just the way that the fucking world is. and It's bullshit. Yeah.
1: Well, you know the way the world is. I think about. I've been thinking about that a lot uh, lately. Um, I'm not like a religious person, so like, and I, no knock on anyone who is. I have no no qualms if people are religious. I'm really settling into this kind of like. A lot of bad shit happens that there's no reason for. You know, like as a kid growing up, I went to Catholic school. So it's like, oh, everything's got a reason and da-da-da. And like I getting into that space in my life where it's like, oh, like a lot of horrible shit happens. And we're bound in society by these kind of like general rules, right? Like of the of the do's and the don'ts, but those do's and those don'ts, like in the business world, I see people fuck each other over all the time. I see people do things for power, for prestige, for the next role. And I also see people not do that and act totally wonderful. But those ideas, like, uh, like often when I hear things about, like let's say company culture and people are like, uh, we wanna be psychologically safe and have a psychologically safe culture. One of the things I say as a coach working with businesses, I was like, hey, you shouldn't say that. Um, And it's not that you shouldn't say that because that's a wonderful thing to have and that you should aspire to have that. It's that by saying that you're falling into the same trap that I think that we fall into the ideas of safety, equality, uh, equity, or any of these things in society where it's like, just because we say it is, doesn't mean it is. hundred percent. Human beings are a wild wild variety of people. We do all sorts of things, uh, good and bad, but also good people do terrible things and terrible people do good things and so much has to do with like the environment you're in the people you're associated with like what do you get out of something so i've been thinking a lot about the like stuff just happens man it's totally wild and so going back to that psychological safety thing what i've encouraged companies to be thinking about is to not say we're going to be a psychologically safe workspace period like stamp because how can you promise that when you have a revolving group of people coming in Absolutely. out of a workplace, they all have different backgrounds? What I encourage people to say is we aspire to be a psychologically safe place more often than not. So like if we think of like from a scorecard, let's say from a starting point, we're gonna to aspire to be psychologically safe minimum 70% of the time, and that's like a heartbeat. But then the 30% we're not, we're not saying that's okay, but we anticipate things are gonna happen in the world, pe- people are gonna do things, but in that 30%, we have The skills to identify that something's happened. We have the network and uh, communication that people can tell us when something's happened and they feel safe. And then we have the ability to quickly act to rectify things. And so we can't promise things will be psychologically safe 100% of the time, but we can start at 70% of the time. And in that 30% where things can happen, we're going to know it, we're going to notice it, we're going to be told about it, and we're going to act very, very quickly. And if businesses, and I'd say kind of like largely in society, if we could get into that mindset, then it's not 70, 30, then it's maybe 75, 25, maybe it's 80, 20, then the the scorecard goes up. I worry when people speak about absolutes, like we are going to be this, or we're gonna be that, because there's so much of like a free pass then that's like, oh, well, well, when we're not that, it's because that one person over there is like not good. It's like, well, that one person you caught that one time, is a problem, but they're not the problem. And it's not weeding people out. It's about saying like, how good are we at at being good and decent? And that's hard. It's hard to be a good and decent person. Totally,
0: absolutely. Like the diversity of man is like probably our best and worst quality, 100%. So yeah, and I, I'm right there with you. Like I'm, I really don't fuck with toxic positivity or whatever, like there's nuances in life that we don't have control over. There's subjectivity, There's con- there's so many things that we don't have control over that like, There's nothing wrong, maybe people just get afraid that they have to acknowledge that in the first place, that like there's things that we don't have control over in this world and in our own lives and lived experiences, but if we can acknowledge that and put certain safety nets and practices in place, we can ensure that like we minimize that and that like you said, like if it happens, we have like the proper structures and, and stuff put in place to ensure that we can rectify whatever happens. Like it's the idea of like begging for forgiveness is easier than asking for permission, let's like just do what you need to do be honest with yourself i guess
1: that honesty with the self like um kind of growing up in punk and hardcore uh and then also having been a therapist i had this like i'm a good person you know and, like i would see things through the scope of like i'm a good person so therefore everything i do is good which means anytime i was doing something shitty, i was like well it's for a good reason and the reason I, I would bring myself up here as a as a conversation piece is like I I try not to talk too much about other people, like in terms of this is what other people are like, this is what I know I'm like. And when I think about things that make me scared or uncomfortable, change in society or change in the way I view things, so much of it comes down to like, I'm not a good person just because I say I'm a good person. And I'm not a good person because of what my job is or what I put in my body or any of those things. From my perspective, I'm a good person because I wrestle deeply with the things that make me afraid and nervous and uncomfortable, and that I shy away from, and that I really try to do my best as best as I can. But also, when I fuck up, as I inevitably will, that I can I can catch myself and and kind of rectify and, and make amends. And it's if it's hard for one person, like from a societal level, like that's a wild ass ride.
0: Absolutely, I'm right there with you. Like. I have these conversations with my parents all the time, like we have, obviously like the generational difference is very, is big, like they're in their mid-60s and it's, I, I don't know, I feel like I have this huge issue with like emotional maturity with them and just this ability for like that generation to like Acknowledge and I can't talk about the whole generation I should say but like they're just an inability to acknowledge that like shitty shit happens And like you don't have to be afraid of it and I, I always ask myself is this just like the shoot shovel shut up generation? Is just like the don't ask don't tell generation that we won't acknowledge our feelings We won't work through our feelings because we don't have the ability or the time to do with to deal with our feelings, you know, being their parents coming from war times and whatnot and now we have a generation that does have the time to experience those feelings and work through those feelings. And growing up, my parents were always like, they were very much like, do you, empowering you, fuck other people, do what's going to be best for you. And now that we're doing that, and those people are now our employers, for example, or our parents, they're going, whoa, whoa, whoa you, you can do that, but not when it makes me uncomfortable.
1: Yeah.
0: So like, yeah, it's it's very interesting.
1: Well, I love what you just said about the generational struggle too, because like, you know, like, I, I mean, I've, I've heard this said about like the generation that I'm part of. It's like, well, there, there were no wars that we, that there were no great depressions. There were no this or that. So like your generation, you kind of just like figure out whatever you wanted to do. And it was almost this like, well, of course you can have these struggles. Cause you don't have like real struggles like war or poverty or, or this or that. And then in modern like you know kind of like our young generations now it's like oh why is everyone so complex and they're so on their feelings it's like you know it's because they don't have war they're all being indulgent it's like well maybe that's a good thing maybe it's like maybe we've gotten to a place where people can spend more time figuring out what it means to be a human being in a really complex world and working on making space for that which is really fucking hard like it's it's scary it's a scary conversation
0: it's a hard conversation to happy yourself like to look yourself in the mirror and be like fuck i really fucked up that like or working through your own kind of subset of issues and i mean i think part of that has to intersect with like our you know the, the mass mental health crisis we're having is like a whole society generation whatever you want to say too like we have the time to like unpack and explore these complex issues where our parents Didn't like. I know my parents definitely didn't like. Listening to the way that they grew up. Like, my dad, he got shipped up to boarding school in Victoria when he was a kid and got the fucking shit kicked out of him daily, emotionally, physically, and mentally. Boys will be boys, and nowadays it's boys will be boys. And I have to tell him like, boys will be boys. Like, boys don't cry, but men fucking do. Like, we don't shy away from that shit anymore. Like, there's nothing masculine. There's nothing more inherently manly. Compressing those feelings and not, sorry, compressing those feelings and not working through them. And it's, that's, that's a big generational thing. I'm noticing, at least in my lived experience, being someone who, like, actively sees a therapist every three to four weeks, who can acknowledge and talk about shit. Like, I talk all the time, like, I myself don't drink a lot. I come from a lot of, there's a lot of alcoholism in my family, I've seen people die. I'm not interested in becoming a statistic. Acknowledging and working through, like, when I'm hungover, I have suicidal ideations and I don't fucking like that. And talking about that with other generations it's like you mentioned suicide and it's this like hush hush scary thing and it is scary don't get me wrong but like it's also this thing where we could acknowledge it and like its existence isn't necessarily like doesn't mean that i'm a bad person and me acknowledging it doesn't make me a bad person
1: heck yeah absolutely all right um so we're we're heading towards the end of the conversation i want to ask one thing about about business specifically and then um I want to go into the three, the three dreaded questions. I always end off asking three hard questions. Um, from a business perspective, you know, like if we're talking about intersectionality, to me it makes sense. Like from a business perspective, it just means that more people feel comfortable getting tattooed and come in and get tattooed. So the industry is like booming, right? What do you think from your perspective, what you see just in your own worldview, what are some of those barriers to truly becoming more of an intersectional industry?
0: So from the individual perspective, as a tattoo artist, examining um, your own kind of thoughts and practices, like if you have maybe predominantly like a a predominantly like male clientele, like, are you asking yourself, like, am I doing everything I can to ensure that I can provide intersectionality to those clients that maybe don't fit this um, narrative that I, I'm, I'm tattooing right now um acknowledging and, and working through kind of those like thoughts and feelings i guess like basic examples would be like if you are a shop owner like do you have a sharps container in your bathroom to provide that for people that have you know, diabetes or other type of medical conditions that require sharps um, do you have a sanitary products available in your washrooms? do you have um, steps or uh, physical things in your shop that are limiting mobility do you have um like there's a multitude of questions we can ask ourselves as, as artists. So I think it's like acknowledging like our own experiences and then asking ourselves, okay, so this is the experience I've had. What ways can I ensure that everyone else has a better experience than maybe what I'm doing now? And like, how can I kind of build on that? Yeah. Um, and going back to accountability and just being honest with yourself and asking like, why do I feel this way? Um, what can I do to change that? And then taking actionable change.
1: Do you mind if I add something to that? Oh go ahead, yeah. It's okay to say I'm not doing good at something. Like I'm a good person but I'm acting like a shithead here or I'm afraid or I'm nervous or I'm not doing good enough or I have a blind spot. It doesn't mean you're a bad person, but not doing it probably means you're not as good a person as you think you are. 100%. 100%. Um, we'll have links to where people can find you online and in the shops and all of that. Uh, but on top of that, is there any shout-outs that you want to give, you know, anywhere you want people to be directed to, to look you up, to look up your work, or shout-outs that you want to give to other people, artists? Sure. Um, my Instagram is
0: at Tattoos, My website is at sebastianmurraytattoos.com. Same thing. Same um, thing. That's where the only place you can find me. I I like have a love-hate relationship with social media. I deleted Twitter. I've deleted the Snapchat. I've deleted, I have a TikTok. Oh, I have TikTok as well. It's at Sebastian Murray Tattoos. I always forget about TikTok. (laughs) That's like a generational thing too that like, follow my coworkers at Blackbird Electric, follow at Carrie Arthur's, uh, follow uh, Craig, follow Simone, follow Mason, I can give you all their links if you if you want to. Um, and then at, uh, in Lethbridge, you can follow my coworker Nixie. Her Instagram is at Nixie Tattoos, um, and just follow the shops Blackbird Electric in Calgary and follow Black Magic Collective in Lethbridge.
1: Awesome, beautiful. All right, you ready for the grimy three? Yes. Okay. Now I want you to know, no one will hold you to this. You can change this answer after this, but for this podcast today, how you're feeling? What are the top three all time greatest? There's nothing better than these three emo LPs of your era.
0: Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> I'm going to say number one has to be like The Black Parade, like point blank. It's, it's my generation's rock opera, you know. Um, it's so good. It was so influential on me. Um, yeah, definitely The Black Parade. Another record I really, really like, The Used in Love and Death. That was like hugely influential on me. I can't believe as like a kid I'm like singing about like injecting f- fucking heroin into my veins. But like, is that not like the like emo, hardcore punk experience Trippy told as a kid? Like, you know. Um, and then I'm gonna say Fall Out Boy Infinity on high. We'll just, we'll say something a little more positive. <laughs> something a little more kind than the use of my chemical romance. But um, I'd say those two records for me at least. I'm gonna say for now those are my answers. I might change them now that I'm, I'm thinking. Because I'm like, oh my God, that's so boring and so generic.
1: Those are great answers. You hammered them out quicker than most people do. All right, let's go to the second question. Okay, so I grew up in Calgary. So in my mind, this is Southern Alberta, but you grew up in Southern Southern Alberta. If you had to pick which one is cooler and why, but you had to pick, you can't be like, they're both totally cool. If you had to pick which one is cooler, which one and why?
0: Honestly, at this point, I'd say Calgary. I, I, like, Lethbridge has positivities, don't get me wrong. It had, you know, it had a great university experience. Um, It has a great queer community as well. It's got a great tattoo community. Uh, But Calgary just feels more inclusive. It just feels more homey to me. I've always been, like, a city kid too versus, like, a small town kid. Um, And it just feels like uh, there's more accessibility here. There's more stuff for me to do here in my lived experience with my interests and whatnot. Um, Yeah, it's just nice. Like, when I live in Lethbridge, my front door leads on to like literally onto a field. So like, it's nice that like, I can like look around here and I don't have any of that. It's just, it's just like, for me, it's like, this is such a different experience what I grew up with and it's like, this is what I always wanted to grow up with as a kid, but like, I was never gonna get that experience. Um, but yeah, I love Calgary. I actually, I genuinely do really like the city. Heck
1: yeah. All right, last question. Um, in your journey as a tattoo artist, what's one thing that you've learned about yourself that you were surprised to learn and really liked like you were like I really felt good that I've learned this about myself and I didn't know it before I started this journey
0: just how I'm I'm, how fucking right I was as a kid that this is all I ever wanted to do like getting into this I'm like oh my god like this is it this is all I want to do and I was right and every person who told me as a kid like you're gonna grow out of that fuck you
1: no I didn't (laughs) and no I'm not (laughs) awesome that is a perfect perfect place to end any last words?
0: Um, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak and thank you to everyone listening. Um yeah, this was fabulous. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
1: Awesome. All right, everyone. Uh we will see you in the outro and definitely in the uh the comments, let us know how you felt about this uh new studio setup. I felt good. How'd you feel?
0: This is good. I this is comfy. It's okay. chill. Good. I like I kind of like the the rotating seats as well. You kind of get a little yeah.
1: I oh, was no, it's good. Yeah, it was good. It was good. It was good. I'm, I'm a little undecided, but this felt, this was felt good. Especially like for
0: the long-legged folks, it's kind of nice. <laughs> you can just kind of like, you know.
1: Good point. Good point. All right, everyone, we'll see you in the outro. And Mike, drop the beat.